This episode of Behind the Brand is brought to you by the York Entrepreneurship Development Institute, or Yeti. Are you ready to turn your entrepreneurial dreams into reality? Join Yeti and unlock your full potential with their comprehensive tuition-free programs, expert mentorship, and unparalleled network of industry leaders. Ignite your success and take the first step towards building a thriving business today. What I wish people would have just told me is like, just start. Just like, it's not easy. It's never easy. In fact, it probably gets harder. There's no real like magic silver bullet. There's no perfect idea. There's no wrong idea. It's just really about like taking step after step, day after day, and you ultimately get to a great outcome. Welcome to Behind the Brand, presented by NEO. We take an inside look at the leaders behind today's most influential brands. I'm your host, Jeff Adamson. As co-founder of Neo Financial and Skip the Dishes, I'm fascinated by what it takes to build great companies. On this podcast, we'll learn from leaders that are reimagining, transforming, and innovating in the financial and retail industries across Canada. Let's get going. I'm excited to introduce Joe Parento, the CEO and co-founder of Fable, a sustainable home goods company revolutionizing the at-home dining experience. With a background as a technology leader and operations expert, Joe knows a thing or two about building teams, building products, and driving sales. In a bold career move, Joe made the leap from the tech industry in 2019 to co-fund Fable alongside Tina Liu and Max Timms. With transparency, sustainability, and ethical production at its core, Fable is a lifestyle brand that designs and delivers premium dinnerware products. With a commitment to becoming a zero-waste company, Fable embodies the ethos of balancing profit and purpose. Joe, welcome to the podcast. So the, the thing that's on my mind, Joe, is I want to know how a guy from Regina... I'm from Saskatoon, you're from Regina. Um, normally there's like a rivalry. We're going to put that aside for today and talk about how a guy from Regina ended up in Barcelona, Spain. Yeah, I mean, well, it's definitely not a, a short story, but it, uh, it took a long time and a lot of work to get there. I was pretty eager at a young age to get out of Regina and, and go explore some new places. Found myself down in Missouri for university, moved back to home, worked at an accounting firm, and then in an Moved out as soon as I experienced one more winter in, in Regina. I got out of there and moved out to Vancouver. It was in Vancouver. I worked at the tech industry quite a bit. I was uh, working at a, a bookkeeping company called Bench Accounting. Learned all about like startups and high pace growth, operations and strategy. And really didn't do any accounting, even though my background is in accounting. From Bench, I really found my, my true love for entrepreneurship. And I think it was very inspired by what they had built there. Ultimately wanted to, to try and build that, build that for myself. I worked at a couple other startups after that, you know, found this problem in, in uh, dinnerware and in home decor and was a little bit frustrated with, you know, that experience of shopping at Ikea at a young age and this, the shopping experience being simple, effortless, and, you know, they're serving you meatballs. It's so quite an enjoyable, you know, pace. But when you look for premium home decor and you're trying to find products that are ethically made, sustainably made, you're left with very few options. You know, you turn to the typical culprits of Pottery Barn, Westell, William Sonoma, EQ3, CB2, and wasn't really inspired by what they were putting together as a collection, not inspired with how they present their collection and couldn't couldn't really find the thing that ticked all the boxes. I shared that that same story mm -hmm. with uh, my two co-founders who I had met at Bench Accounting, like a, a tech company previously. And they were like, hey, why, why don't we do that? And, you know, we were like, oh, well, we come from tech. You know, let's, do, let's build a physical product. How hard could it be? Turns out really hard. And uh, we were, you know, ba battled through it for a little bit and ultimately built a company that was fully remote. 
let people live and work wherever they want. I got out of here and moved to a warmer weather out in Spain. Why not Hawaii? Why not Colombia, Brazil? I mean, Barcelona, I've been there. It's an incredible spot. I'd love to go again. Was there some sort of business advantage to being in Barcelona? Well, in- initially, we were living out in Toronto for a tech accelerator, my wife and I. We moved and got a visa. We, we just wanted to kind of, you know, find somewhere new. That, that was really the, the motivation. We looked at Nashville. Mm-hmm. It was in the middle of a pandemic. The border was closed. We looked at Europe. Our suppliers at Fable, some of our biggest suppliers are in Portugal. So we actually, our first visa was in Portugal. So we lived there for the first year. We then fell in love with that warm weather and Spanish tapas and uh, found ourselves over in Spain. So that, that's where we were able to get our residency. That's amazing. And th- that's one of the beauties of remote work is that it's letting people kind of experience different cultures and you know do things that you know perhaps if you were stuck doing the commute in Toronto that maybe you, you wouldn't be able to do. I want to actually talk about your, your shift from post-university. You're a college athlete, NCAA golf, is that right? NAIA, which is like the other league there. Okay, got it. What were your first jobs out of university? Did you go kind of straight into the, the, the big four or did you go straight into into the into the startup path like right after university i was a bartender i was bartending at two different places out in regina and then i eventually found my job found a job in saskatchewan it's like the largest independent accounting firm it was there that i probably learned the most even more than university they really trained me i, re- I really learned about you know office profession and, and you know how to navigate that world so that was that was really where it all got started then i moved out to vancouver and that's where i fell in love with the the tech industry and you know startups themselves I feel like people's upbringing does kind of have a huge impact on how they kind of carry themselves, how they do business. What is it about growing up in Saskatchewan that you've kind of carried with you in your career moving forward? Like when you move from from Saskatchewan to Vancouver, did you find that they just had a totally different way of doing business and that like your your idea of how businesses should be done was different or is it pretty consistent? You know, my upbringing was very much pretty entrepreneurial. Like in terms of like how my family promoted things inside of our house, like what we did for toys, it was Lego or items like that. It was very much about building and crafting and, you know, uh, taking control of different situations. So I, I think in naturally because of that, I was always going to, I was always leaning towards business, always leaning towards like starting something of my own and always, you know, a lemonade stand at a garage sale or building stuff with Lego and submitting it to the Lego magazine. I think that's like my biggest claim to fame is I was pictured in the Lego magazine for a submarine I built when I was like eight. That always was like a big, a big part of my upbringing. But, you know, from there in Vancouver, I felt it was, it was definitely different. It was a, it was a heck of a lot warmer and a little bit cooler in the summers. But ultimately, you know, I, I think people in Canada are all very similar in the sense of supporting each other and, you know, building a community. When you were at Bench, I guess, what was it about that experience? You said you, you went from 30 employees to 250 um, a lot of people, though, that that's a pretty chaotic environment. That's a pretty intense environment. What was it about that experience that kind of gave you that fire of like, hey, I want to go out and do something like this on my own? Like to me, it's like a lot of people are like, that sounds like a heck of a lot of work and a heck of a lot of chaos. Like I'll rather do something a little bit more comfortable. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe that's just the nature of who I am. I get most excited when we were 30 people. And ultimately, I, I left Bench for no other reason that it was too big. And there wasn't the chaos that was there when we were early days. And, you know, there was still great potential with the company and there, there still is. But the chaos that was 30 people is what excited me. I loved being in the storm, fighting fires and, and seeing the unbelievable potential that things have and, you know, trying to bring that to reality. So ultimately, I think that those early, early stage startups uh, inspired me. Like, that's where I was meant to be. You know, when I worked in an accounting firm before, it was like 80 people. I, I wasn't inspired day in and day out. Certainly, I think I was making more money there, but I was more inspired when I was at that smaller stage. And it was 
every single day something new and something exciting. And you're ultimately building and building something for the future, which uh, felt very rewarding. Yeah, you're touching on something that I think that comes with with experience and maturity of, of understanding like what stage is the right stage for you. And I that's something I had no idea about, Joe, where I was like, how you can be the right person for a certain stage and the wrong person for a different stage, or the company can be a wrong fit for you. How did you go about learning that? Like, for example, if you're you're an early stage guy, it sounds like you enjoy the, the problem solving, the collaboration, the figuring it out. Once it becomes super process oriented and it becomes more about, you know, governance and risk, that's something that doesn't really give you much of a thrill, although I'm sure you've, you know how to deal with those things. When you realize that, hey, I'm not really enjoying this, a lot of people don't look themselves in the mirror and say, oh, I'm actually just an early stage guy. Sometimes they'll look at it and say, this company isn't a good company. Like, why were you able to kind of take the ownership and, and kind of reflect and say, I like the early stage rather than kind of pointing the finger back at the different companies you worked well, at? You know, honestly with you, Jeff, I think if there was a period in time when I did point the finger back at the other company and say, oh, why is it not the way it used to be? But I think, you know, you eventually come to the realization that, you know, you have to be accountable for for your own situation in life and uh, fundamentally came to realize like what is going on at Bench is fantastic for Bench. And that, that, that's the path it was always meant to be on. But for me, that's that's not the stage I wanted to be at. I was very fortunate. I went traveling for three months in Europe where I, I fell in love with this with the continent. When I came back, I, I realized like this is not where I want to be. While I love the people I work with, I love the challenges, but it wasn't the right stage. And uh, I, I left and then I went to a, be the first employee at a tech company in SF. And then that was a whole other thing when I was employee number one over there. And that was uh, that was a real startup. But yeah, I think that, you know, you got to look internally. And I think for me, it was, it was, I had to come to the realization of stop pointing my finger, I guess, at the other company and start saying like, well, how can I take control of this situation? Because Bench is not going to go back to being 30 people. That's, that was never the plan. And I don't want that for them anyways. Mm -hmm. So I think it was that realization mm -hmm. that, you know, kind of gave me that, uh, that insight. I've heard the problem statement. You basically, the way you outlined it was, you had had these experiences, you know, at the, the pottery barns of the world and, and you know, what, not to say anything bad about them, um, but, you know, they're not maybe doing it the way that you would want to do it. You've had the Ikea experience, but when it came to kind of high-end home goods, you kind of felt like there was a gap in the market. What was it about that problem that got you excited about it? Like, and I love the, by the way, the fact that you're passionate about just like solving that problem. And I've seen your product by the way, and it's, it's incredible. Like it's, it's a total another level above what else is out there. And every little piece of the experience I can tell has been thought through. So, so kudos on that. But I'm just curious. I love always understanding like when smart motivated people focus and kind of obsess on, you know, when you were a kid, I doubt that you were like, you know, Hey, when I grow up, I want to like sell high-end dishware and cutlery. Like I doubt that's what you were thinking, but here you are and you sound super fired up about it. So tell me about that. Tell me about the why behind the problem itself. I mean, like when I was a kid, I most certainly wasn't thinking about dinnerware. I did have this insight that I feel like is very true is that most people, whatever they want to do when they grow up, 99% of the time, they don't end up doing that. And I was always under the mindset that like, whatever I think I want today, I always grew up wanting to be an architect because I was building up light all the time. And I was, it was never meant for me. I suck at drawing. I was not that great at some areas. I was like, this is never going to work. I think that I was always open to whatever, whatever came my way. If it was the right problem at the right time, I wanted to solve it. And I always knew that, you know, from working at Bench, I think they really pulled that out of me that what I am is I want to be a problem solver. I like to find problems and come up with creative solutions. What happened at, at Fable ultimately was, was that, right? I didn't think, oh, I'm going to go build a dinnerware company. I've seen this market opportunity and I didn't analyze it that much. I did nothing, right? It was simply this experience of me trying to buy dinnerware, went into these stores that this was horrible. 
why is there not a better brand for this? Why has someone not built the Warby Parker of dinnerware? Why doesn't this happen? And it, and there was many conversations after that with co-founders and people that I consider advisors to me at this point. Why don't you just do it? Like, like I don't know anything about dinnerware. I'm like, you can figure it out. Like, no one knows anything about dinnerware. The only best person to go figure it out is going to be the person who's most motivated to do it. So it was it was really that situation, you know, just motivated to solve the problem, but also just willing to to you know dig my feet in the trenches and and figure it out. The three co-founders, we knew nothing about anything about physical products. We didn't even know what Shopify was barely. It took a lot of work, but you know, you, you can figure these things out. It's really awesome that you guys have kind of gotten together. And I think that's really overlooked when people who go to work at startups or even other companies, like, because you said all three of you are from Bench, is that right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In, in some way or another, two of us work at Bench and then the third co-founder, her husband was a co-founder. So we admit we'd met her a few times because she was very close. To them. Okay. It's those relationships that you build while you're, you know, wherever you are, whether that's at a big company or at another startup, we've got six, 700 employees here at Neo. And when someone comes to me and says, Hey Jeff, like I'm quitting, I want to go start my own thing. You know, you're always sad to like lose great people, but when they say they're, they're leaving to go and start something of their own, that just gets me so fired up. And then it's more just like, well, like, Hey, how can we help you? Like, you know? who else is going to get excited about this? Because I just think that we need so much more of it in Canada. Like we keep, I don't know, like, what do you think it is about Canada, Joe? You've been to Silicon Valley, like you've been to SF, it sounds like, or you worked at an early stage business. And there's something about staying kind of comfortable here and kind of working in, in, you know, good, high quality jobs, but then not really taking those risks. Like, what do you see? Like, why don't we start more companies here? Why don't we kind of shoot for the stars? You know, I, I don't, I'm not sure why maybe Canadians haven't built more, but I also think there's a lot of Canadian companies that build them know are Canadian, frankly. And I think that Canadians are inherently less boastful, but we're more to ourselves and more like, we don't, we don't really tell people when things are going really well. You know, there is this like humbleness of Canada, I think that exists. I think ultimately that also leads to not a lot of people knowing what is Canadian and what is actually from the United States. And I think that, you know, there are big companies out there who have been very Canadian companies who have been very vocal about like, hey, we're Canadian, we're Canadian and help promote it. And I don't think there's that many. I think there's there's quite a few others that I know have seen, you know, unicorn valuations in the tech space that don't talk that they're from from Canada. They still, while everything's here in Canada, they don't identify as being that Canadian, you know, success story. So mm-hmm. I think that that's also a big part of it. Well, like, what is it about being Canadian that they're trying to shy away from? Like, like, why do you think that they wouldn't want to? Like, isn't there, I, I think there's like a ton of strengths from being from Canada. Canadians are, are way more down to earth. I think that we have a, like an approachability. There's much more like, a, you know, integrity in the way that we conduct ourselves. Why wouldn't want people to be kind of proud of those Canadian roots? I, I think Canadians are very proud. I, I guess that's not what I'm getting at. To draw an analogy, I, I lived in the United States for three years when I went to university. I could tell you every night I went out to a bar, there was a USA chant. You know, USA, 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 every night. <laughs> yeah. I've never been to a Canadian bar, people chanting Canada, unless the Hockey Olympics are on. I think there's an inherent difference between the people where we're not chanting, you know, maybe I think we're patriotic. I, I think we care a lot about Canada, but I think there's this humbleness that people don't aren't as vocal yeah. about where they are or where they're from that, that I think Americans have, which I think is a great trait for Americans because it's very clear what is American and, and what isn't. Yeah, it's more quietly proud. But like, I think that it needs to change a little bit. Like, I don't want us to lose all the good things about, because I don't know if I want us all cheering, <laughs> like chanting, oh, Canada, every time I go out. But like when I was competing with Team Canada on the wrestling team, there was this, this like swagger that American athletes had. And sometimes they would have no right, really. They maybe didn't have the talent. Maybe they didn't even have the work ethic, but they had that confidence. They're just like, I'm from, I'm, I'm American. Number one. 
And so that means I'm going to win. Yeah, yeah, we're number one. And sometimes they actually would go out and win and they have no right winning. But, you know, it's that confidence that they have that they're, they're like, hey, because I'm American, that means yeah. I need to win. You see it come through in a lot of companies too. A lot of the companies you're like, this is not a well-run company, but they just will it into existence. I agree. Tell me about some early early pivots. It's not been all smooth sailing, getting Fable to where it is now. Like you got a really slick product, slick website. I know that behind the scenes, things aren't always like that. Tell me about some pivots that you had early on that, that really stand out. A lot. Yeah, a lot. I wouldn't say there was any major pivots at Babel where I'm like, oh my God, we went from making suitcases to dinnerware. There wasn't anything like that drastic or, you know, that juicy to share. But I would say there was, you know, a lot of conversation at Fable around where we should make our products, who should make them, and, you know, how we want to tell the story of the products that wasn't clearly defined when we first started the business. So the biggest pivot right out of the gate was shifting all production into Portugal on the ceramics. And it's not something we were doing at the start. We started out, we looked to where everyone else looks. We went on Alibaba. And uh, we're like, wow, this is okay. 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 Quality came in. wasn't very good. And that's kind of on us. And we fundamentally were like, this is not the story we want to tell. This is not why we created Fable. We want to be talking about who's making it, telling maker stories, videotaping, you know, how it's made. And we weren't really getting that reception out of the suppliers that we were talking to before that. So yeah, fundamentally, that was our first biggest pivot. I would say the second was when we moved fulfillment from third-party logistics into in-house. So we manage all of our fulfillment ourselves right now besides a, a few partners in the UK, that was the biggest challenge we were facing is for the longest time, CPLs couldn't figure out how to ship our products because they're so breakable. And they weren't putting enough batting and they're putting too much batting. We were just could not dial that in. We went through three different 3PLs in under a year trying to figure out a solution. People said, we can't work with you. Your product's too big. Your product's too heavy. Your product's breakable. And then we'll try. And it didn't work. And we'll try. It didn't work. Or you're, you're too small. You're too big. And we just could not dial in that success. So I think it was January 2021, we had shifted, pulled everything out of 3PLs, turned off shipping for a few weeks, and released a warehouse. And we had no idea how to scan products or do anything. Like We didn't have any connections at Canada Post or FedEx or UPS. And we were all in-house. And I think that's one of the best decisions we made. We saw instant gains in margin. Instant like customers were happier, but that, that was a, that was a big pivot for us. And it really, you know, we went from selling products and really focusing on marketing to actually we have a whole operations system we need to create and and have run very smoothly, which was never really the case. Before. Sounds like you've been talking to the guys over at Article <laughs> a little bit, yeah. They kind of had the same situation where like they looked at where all their complaints were coming from, and it was on the fulfillment side, you know. And, and it's it's pretty common too, like you see this in businesses where they kind of manage a certain part of the value chain, and then they just continually expand across the value chain, like Amazon a good example. Apple's a good example. And then it becomes like, like how much more difficult did your business become? Like difficult in the sense of like the complexity of what you had, what you needed to manage once you got into, into the fulfillment piece. Two times. It was like double the complexity. Only double. Okay. That's actually, you're probably doing it really well then. Like when we, when we started out skip, we only, all we would do is just send an order to a restaurant and then we would just like wipe our hands. We were done. We didn't have to do anything. The restaurant cooked cook the food, deliver the food, that was it. And then we realized, well, there wasn't all that many restaurants that actually deliver in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, or like 90% of the towns and cities in Canada. So we started doing logistics while our CTO was on his honeymoon. And uh, when he came back, we were like, yeah, we're actually doing delivery now. It was just like, he understood how, how painful this was going to be. We had no idea. We were like, yeah, we've got like five drivers. <laughs> they're out there, like they're crushing it. Our order volume is going up. And... It 10x the complexity of the business for us. 
Are you actually managing like the actual drivers themselves or are you just warehousing and, and, and kind of managing yeah, it's just, inventory? it's just the warehousing. So we have, we weren't really seeing the issues with like the FedEx component. It was just really about the boxing and the storage and uh, inventory management side, reboxing, packaging, getting all of that sorted by ourselves. That was where really the, the challenge came in. And so do you have, how many, how many warehouses do you have across Canada? And are you, are you in the US yet or not? We just have two in Canada and then we ship down into the States. Okay, got it. Why D to C, why direct to consumer and, and why not look at partnerships with other organizations that you felt were going to be able to uphold the brand uh, standards that you have? We didn't even know that that existed, to be honest with you. I think it was just blatant ignorance. I didn't even know that the idea of like mass distributors was uh, a concept we could even explore. I think we could only really pull from our own experience, which was, hey, I want better plates. I want better ceramics. I want something that stands for sustainability. And the best way to do that was was on the e-commerce side. We also have a little bit of a tech background. So I think we're always looking for a way to, to put it on the internet versus just the sending it to a distributor to, to get out in the world. What are some of the challenges with the DTC model that you didn't see coming? Like, I think there's a lot of people out there, especially with the pandemic, they picked up side hustles. They're wanting to, to get a business going. And I think you know, you guys are, are kind of, I think you have product market fit. Like it looks like you guys are scaling. Was there anything that you were like kind of gotchas that you found discovered after the fact that you think other people might benefit from understanding? We had to learn a lot on the rising costs of like to acquire a customer, like CAC costs. That was a really interesting component to us where it, during the pandemic, it had pulled forward a lot of the demand. That's not something we really quite understood that demand was getting pulled forward. CAC levels were quite low. So areas of the business we thought we were optimizing were actually didn't really matter. When we, we should have been focused on was things like margin because uh, with low CAC, margin wasn't as much of a concern for us at the time. I think the, you know, the other gotchas is I, I think the D2C model is definitely shifting and it's evolving. I think a lot of brands I talked to and how we had approached it originally was we looked at Away, Warby Parker, Casper as inspiration. How do they scale? How do they get to that level? And the path that they took is not the correct path anymore. That is not the way to do it. And I think it took a lot of realization that the way that they did it through the marketing channels they used isn't the same as how it's today. And actually, you need to be looking at some maybe the younger brands for, you know, how are people getting creative on the, you know, people who are doing more uh, newer ways of expanding your business. I, th I think that that's something that I, you know, we, we'd fall in, in the trap to or other people too. The average person has no concept of how expensive it is to acquire customers on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, like like a lot of people think it's all organic and they don't realize that like every time they click on an ad, every time they even see an ad, that basically costs a company money. The cost per click now is astronomic. Yeah. Like what have, what, have, what have you found to be what some of the effective channels that you're using? Well, we use all the traditional channels like everyone else, right? So we are still using Pinterest, Instagram, Facebook. TikTok. The, w w the way we get the most customers though today and always has been is word of mouth. I think our product generally lends itself to that experience. You're at a dinner party, you see the plates on somebody else's table and then you you like it, right? And you're like, oh, I should buy some of those for myself. The other way that we you know, mm -hmm. really focus on reducing our reliance on those paid channels is through repeat customers and repeat purchasing behavior. One of our very first hires was hiring a, t a retention marketer, which is a little bit obscure for, a gr like we didn't have any growth marketers, right? We The first person we hired was retention marketing. All we care about is how do we create, make Fable a repeat purchase machine where people come back and love the product, want to buy some more. So a lot of our investment actually goes into product development and on retention tactics. But in terms of growth, you know, where we're seeing success right now is through, I want to say like B2B partnerships. So we're working with restaurants mm. or different hotels and really trying to get them product at borderline cost to us 
because we know people can go in there and experience it. The early insight was, hey, our people are hearing it word of mouth. Hey, Jeff went to a dinner party. You saw some Fable, then you went and bought Fable. But how do you get that to happen at a bigger scale? You need to go onboard restaurants, hotels where people are having turnover, lots of people, and they can experience your products in those settings. That's super clever. Actually, I love, you know, when people are investing in product and partnerships over clicks and impressions, I just think that very difficult, hard to scale, but especially like earlier stage, it's just so much more cost effective because I don't think customers are going to care how much you spend on Facebook advertising. I think they care about you know, a good product, you know, they want to know that, hey, we're using the same dinnerware that like the best restaurant in yep. town is using. I'd love to hear a little bit more in detail on those partnerships. Like how do you structure them from a, like getting your brand out? Because like, I can't remember the last time I like looked at the back of a plate at a restaurant, even though I probably have done it. Like, do you try to get your brand somewhere else in the restaurant by saying, hey, we'll provide this to you at cost, which is a no brainer that they, sh- they should do it. But then you want to make sure your brand gets visible without taking away from you know, the hotel or restaurant brand. Is there some hacks that you've you've come up with of, of getting your, your name out there more? Well, yeah, I wouldn't say they're hacks. It's probably what everyone is thinking is the obvious answers, right? Like we've done like dinner parties where we're listed on the menu. We've done hotels where when they leave and check out, we offer, we ask to get in their email flow and offer an exclusive discount on the Fable products. But, you know, a lot of the people are flipping over the plate or looking at the bottom of the wine glass and seeing the Fable logo. So we are still seeing people come in that way. Yeah, it's a combination of a lot of different tactics. Still no like major silver bullet one way or the other, but you know, it's kind of a, takes, it takes a lot. Most of the dinnerware that people are seeing at, at restaurants and, and hotels just isn't at the quality of yours anyways, and which is, could, be, could be why it's more effective when it's your product. Have you found that restaurants or hotels, like do you have a team focused on each vertical or, or how are you guys actually like going about it? Is it just you kind of making the calls yourself? It's just me. Yeah, yeah. So at Fable, you know, our, our approach has always been that we'll hire someone when we know it can work or when we have an indicator that it's going to be successful. So when we opened our first warehouse, my co-founder Max, who doesn't never driven a forklift, but now is a skilled operator, opened the warehouse himself, right? So like <laughs> it, we, we have always approached it in that way where we're not going to go bring in a big external team or hire a bunch of people unless we're pretty certain with a high, yeah, pretty high degree certain that it's going to work. Because we would hate for someone to leave one job to come to Fable to then realize that like that's that doesn't work. And these channels, while we're seeing success today with restaurants and some of those other areas, that that shifts so quickly. And that's I think speaks to the the speed that direct consumers moving it. You constantly have to be looking for new channels. But luckily for for us, Jeff, we did hire a director of sales who starts next week. So we do have someone coming in to to take that off my hands. <laughs> Well, it's good then. And then based on your, your framework, then it, then it seems like it's scalable. How, how did you, I'm, I'm curious to know, like, how, how did you come up with your founding team? Like, I feel like a lot of people think of entrepreneurship as a, a kind of a solo thing, but you know, you've got two other, two other or three other co-founders. How did you go about finding them? And was it, Hey, here's the idea. Do you want to start this type of company with me? Or was it, Hey, we all want to start a company. We don't know what it is yet. We just need to find something that's cool. And we're going to, we're going to do it. Yeah. Well, it's it's never, you know, just one conversation and it's never a, you know, a pure straight line. I was sharing this problem with with Jordan, one of one of the co-founders of Bench I'd mentioned earlier, and and he said, and my wife's actually really looking into plates right now. So there was a easy alignment there that we were both <laughs> like, Hey, we're why are we both looking at this? Like, should should we team up? She has a background in web dev. We you know, having a web dev person on your team is a no brainer. And she, you know, she's phenomenal at her job. So it was like an obvious answer that we should get on the same team. And uh, Tina and I just work really well together. You know, just general, you know, she's a down-to-earth person. 
wants willing to get her hands dirty and wanted to make it happen. So that was an obvious answer. My other co-founder, Max, all of it was, you know, I think he was looking into biodegradable diapers or something. He's also an entrepreneur at, at his at heart and uh, a guy from Alberta. And he was very much trying to figure out like what did he want to do uh, in the, you know, for his own startup. And we were playing beach volleyball together. We've been friends for years. And um, I was telling him like, hey, I'm, I'm working with Tina on this thing. And like nothing came out of it. He's a good at-home chef. One day we wanted to take some photos of some plates. And uh, I said, hey, could you come over and cook uh, some food to put on these plates? And uh, he's like, yeah, yeah, of course, I'll come over. And, you know, I think I think the team just gelled really well. And then we asked Max to, to join in. And it was a really good fit right out of the gate. So it wasn't a clear path. We didn't, we were like ultimately not looking for a third person, not looking for another person. It just happened. And uh you know, when, when those things, the stars just align, mm-hmm. you know, you're just kind of in the right spot. You know, the web dev side of things makes sense. But like, how do you guys divide up responsibilities to say, hey, you're going to own this area, you're going to own this area without just kind of everyone yeah. doing everything? Well, I mean, at the start, everyone was kind of doing everything, to be honest. And it was, it was chaos. And uh, we did something the very first like couple weeks in called like domain setting. So we listed out all the main domains. Where would we want VPs of everything? Right? We want a VP marketing. We want a VP tech. We want a VP product, a VP web product, all these different roles that we'd eventually want in the company. And we started saying, well, who's best suited to do these? So, you know, where's your skill set lie? And let's be honest with each other, like who should be doing what? And then we aligned people to that. And we right-sized it a little bit. You know, Max is a great jack of all trades. So he's always willing to let go of some things or, or take on some other. That is actually still a process we do today with our mm-hmm. leadership team at Fable. Probably like every two quarters, we'll have a meeting on just domains. Who's doing what? You know, now we have partnerships as a big part of our business. Who should be doing that? And should it be Joe anymore? Is he the best person to be doing this? Who is capacity? Who should who should be taking on this new objective? Mm-hmm. So it's a constant conversation on aligning responsibility. Joe, like outside of the domains, like what are the attributes that you look for in kind of your early team? You got your founding team. What are the attributes that you look for in a founding team? I'm not saying like someone who knows yeah. how to code. It's more around like the characteristics, then the kind of next cohort of early employees, you know, scale up employees. How do you see those people as being different? Yeah, it's a good question. I think out of the start, you really need to look for problem solvers. Uh, people who can identify a problem, explain the problem, and then already have solved the problem. Not They, they know the solution, but they, they've already solved it. People that see a problem and just instantly go solve mm-hmm. it. Uh, don't wait for permission, but they are just like they're kind, they're kind of aligned on that. Second, I think it's just that alignment on values, right? When we, when we talk about the company values and the brand values and how we like to work, you've got to see pure alignment there. Right out of the gate, all three founders said we want mm-hmm. a remote company. I want it, Max. I want to live in Costa Rica. Tina, I want to live in Toronto. And I was like, I've got, I got to get to Spain or something. So ultimately, we all aligned that we're building a remote company. And all the team members would have to align to that. We weren't going to bring people in who, who wanted an office. Now, once we have the, you know that kind of core team, people solving problems, it's great because whatever comes up, you know the person's smart and you know they're going to figure out a solution for it. Sometimes you make mistakes, mm-hmm. but you know you, you battle through it. When you bring on the next wave of people, you're also what we found is we, we also look for problem solvers because your first employee through the first like ten, they have to solve every problem, right? There's just no like that's not my job. You you have to be able to do that. We look for people who have like past experiences where they've been put in those positions. Like obviously other employees who worked early stage startups is a no brainer, but that's, you know, there, there's not that many of them or maybe they're doing their own thing now, right? Those people always turn out to be their own, doing their own business at that point. Uh, we also look for people who have done like gardening or something like that. People who've done like hard work where you're like, I have to get my hands dirty and they're not afraid to go get their hands dirty. And once you have that team aligned, we started looking at specialists. 
So then we say, well, what's the biggest problem here? Like, we need a copywriter. We don't need a jack of all trades. We need someone who is just like every day writes amazing copy. And that's that's what they love to do. That's their life's passion. Yeah. And uh, then you start finding those specialists and filling in the gaps. And we have more gaps than I could count at Fable right now. More specialists than I'd want than we can afford to hire for the next five years. But ultimately, you know, you have those you have those core group of ten people who can fill in, and then you start filling in those gaps. And you know, the copywriters of the world, the retention marketers. The uh, designers, you, you get those spots filled in. There's no better feeling than when you hire a specialist who basically can like show you how bad your work is and how much better they can do it than yeah. you. And you're just like, oh my God. Like, it's like, well, it's a weird feeling because you're like, oh my God, we've been doing it so <laughs> yeah. bad for so long. But like the good feeling of finally there's someone who, here who knows what good looks like and who knows what great looks like. I know. Such a mixed feeling. Yeah. I say like, today we still see the same problem. Sometimes I'll design something up and I'll send it to our creative director and he goes, that's ugly. I'm like, well, I appreciate the feedback talking about like, oh my God, I did my best on that. Uh, but you know, yeah. Yeah, no, there's there's definitely a clear <laughs> skill gap that you quickly realize. And then they make such an impact when you get them on the team. You've mentioned sustainability a few times. And, and you know, I feel like there's some companies out there that are like, it's a marketing ploy for them. There's some companies out there like we had, I don't know if you if you know the David Luba from, from Tentree, that you, they're yeah. from Regina as well. You know, they were like, they identified it as being like a tree planting company that sells clothes. When you talk to David or you talk, you know, to Derek, these guys are like deep in the tree planting world. They've gone down the rabbit hole. But I feel like a lot of other companies are like, hey, we think we can get in on the sustainability trend and we'll acquire more customers or we'll lower our CAC. So I'm like, I'm curious, like, why do you guys have that as part of your brand? And it's okay that the answer is either way. Like, hey, listen, if you can if you can lower your CAC, if you can sell more of your products by being a sustainable company, that's also good for the planet. That seems like kind of a win-win to me. A lot of people don't think of sustainability when it comes to dinnerware. So why did you guys? Yeah, it's a good question. I, you know, my comment is I, I think it can lower CAC, but it definitely doesn't lower margin. I think it makes margin incredibly challenging. And when you look at contribution margin, it's uh, it doesn't help any much on the on the the CAC side of the business. You know, for us at Fable, sustainability, I think more relates to our personal values and the, like brands that we like to purchase from. So it wasn't like we looked at dinnerware and said, holistically, there's a problem in the world with how dinnerware is made. We, we didn't know that. I, that that's not like, yeah. it's like really not, it's not that big of a problem. But when we looked and said, well, we want to create a brand mm-hmm. that we can be proud of, that we're excited to work at every single day. We looked at what brands that we like to shop with and mm-hmm. it was sustainability. Ultimately, that's where the sustainability came in. It's not that we wanted to, or that we think that plates are destroying the entire world. These are, it's clay. Like it is, it's okay. You can put it, you know, it, it compotes down. You can use it in concrete. Like there's a lot of ways that clay is okay for the world. But what we, what we did to know is that for us, mm-hmm. sustainability was a core value for us personally. And that's something we wanted to roll up. And now, you know, way we think about sustainability is not only that, it's just also how you treat your team members and the work environment you create. And that's why ultimately why we moved to like a, a B Corp or a benefit corporation was because the way that the value we actually have, while sustainability is a big, big core of that, ethical craftsmanship, a huge piece of that, it's also just about running a company that, you know, aligns to our values. And that's, you know, how we, you know, compensate employees, how we treat employees, and all the way through the sustainability aspect. And we felt like the B Corp or Benefit Corporation actually encapsulated all of that. So that, that that's what we think about alignment. We had the uh, the founder of the Ten Spot on, and so she's like hardcore entrepreneur, and she had values. And I think she ripped them up after a year two, and then spent another year kind of coming up with new ones. And her team are so fired up about their brand, their values that some of them, I think they have like six employees that actually got like the company logo tattooed on their body. Crazy. So I'm curious to know, like, did you guys come up with your values day one? 
and then you've kind of left them etched in stone or are you waiting to kind of see what type of values you need in order to run the type of company that you you want like what what kind of values do you need in order to actually succeed in this business we we wrote our company values two times once was at the very very start of the business and once was six months later since that six months that was in 2020 we haven't <laughs> changed them they've been the same uh it's something that we we spent a lot of time on uh we dug into but that being said there probably will be revisions in the future. You know, the world's changing, we're changing, and the business is changing. And, and they may adapt, especially as you add more team members and you go from six employees to 20 to 80 to 500 employees. You, you need to adjust those types of things. And mm-hmm. that is okay. And we're, we're comfortable with that. But to date, they've served us really well. And the team's really fired up and, and motivated by them. So we haven't had any major need to, uh, to big, you know, big adjustments or revisions. How did you know that they needed to be changed after six months? Like, what was it about the original values that you were like, hey, we need to rip these things up? Uh, there's too many of them. So we couldn't like, no one could memorize them because there was like 10 different things. They were not worded that well. We didn't have a copywriter. So when we got a copywriter, it's like we were going to adjust <laughs> these. Um, and uh, they didn't mean much. They were just very broad and uh, they weren't specific. You know, you can put a company value down that does um, can mean a lot to a lot of people, and we needed to add some more verbiage behind them, like to explain that company value uh, to the team. It was more about adding definition. Fundamentally, things didn't change. You know, we were still focused on sustainability, um, still focused on building a great workspace, and still making shopping for home decor easy and effortless. Like, there's a lot of the core company direction hadn't shifted. But the, the the language on it was moving quite a bit. Where do you want to take Fable? Like, you guys have you know, built an amazing brand. You've got an amazing product. Long-term, where does this go? You know, for us, it's it's evolving. But the the vision we've always set out to be is to feel right at home is, is really the coin term that we always play around with. And what that means is when you walk into your house, you feel, you feel good. You feel good about the pieces you have. Your space looks beautiful. And, you know, it was easy to put together, right? That entire space. Now, we're a tabletop brand today. And really, if you looked at what our product team's developing today, it's not tabletop. So we're very much focused on becoming a full home decor brand um, and expanding into other categories across the space. Um, but we envision a beautiful, effortless experience that's, you know, with products that are made sustainably and ethically, um, the future of home decor shopping. And we're trying to figure out, you know, how we make sure Fable's a name in that space and becomes a household name for them. That's amazing. I, I'm curious because like you are a very much product-centric business. And one of the other great product guys we had on was Mike Geddes from Kiln. So he's the XND mattresses, uh, and he was kind of describing his his process for iterating on product, and, it, and like he he oversimplified it in a big way. Like I think he gave me like a one word answer where he's like, "Yeah, we just we iterate." Um, but then it turned out like they used like customer reviews, and they had like automation in place to like quickly like and tons of process. Like it sounds like you're coming up with lots of new products soon. What's that? product kind of development release iterate cycle like like within fable monthly is the cycle so every month we're looking to release a new product so we should always be dropping something new um the way we look at product today has shifted since the past we always thought oh hey well we'll be able to you know turn products over in three months and that that's simply not the case when you want to create something very good and also find the right supplier that that aligns to your company values but ultimately, uh, right now, our, our process is we identify different addressable markets. That's always a starting point. We talk to a boatload of customers, mm-hmm. talk to potential customers. We we actually just hired, a, not just hired, but we've had a customer researcher on our team. So that's all she does is look for opportunity. And we aim to design 
a beautiful product, but also partner the design with function. And I think in home decor, that's what's a lot is missing, right? You have beautiful pieces, but there's a function element. And we really, we didn't know this at the start, but when we launched our glassware, it's like this um, ion toughened pieces that make them more shadow resistant because they're, they're more dense. If you dropped it on like a wood floor, it shouldn't like shatter in the same way that it would if it was a very thin, a thin piece. But when we realize that you can have these function elements inside of your pieces, that that's what we're aiming for now. So it has to be beautiful, has to have a good function. And then of course has to meet our, our brand values and, and product principles. That's amazing. When, when people ask you, Joe, you know, what's your exit strategy? What do you tell them? <laughs> I tell them that I'm not sure. I explain that. We're on a highway, we're moving very quickly, and we know that if we keep doing the right things and we build a big business that has you know strong metrics and a good community behind it, the exit paths to get off the highway will appear and we can choose whichever one we want. But we don't get too hyper-focused on you know how is Pottery Barn going to buy Fable in the future. We don't really even get caught up in that situation. <laughs> um, we're, not, we're not looking at something in the immediate term anyway. So for us, it's, it's just really about building yeah. this beautiful car that can cruise down the highway and it will find the right exit that that meet, that uh, makes sense for us in the community. Great answer. I'm always curious with people how they think about that. That's similar to how we think about it too, where we're like, you can tell when you meet someone who's building a company to yeah. sell it um, versus someone who's building it to solve a problem and building it to create value. Of course, like you know there's exits that are going to appear. If you're not actually creating value or solving problems, then, then those aren't going to appear. And it's like, like someone who's like, hey, I want to start a company simply because I want to get rich. I mean, I think it wears off over time. I feel like you you getting out of bed in the morning and sometimes it's just too difficult if you're just there for the money. But if you're there and you like see the feedback coming in from customers who love the product and you see the joy that your employees and your team have from like building something beautiful, that's something that I think is way, way more vo- motivating than kind of getting a, a great exit. Finish things off here. What, what's the kind of key message that you want to get out to our listeners about Fable? Or even about starting a company. For you know, starting a company, I think, you know, I, I when I was before Fable, very much listened to a lot of entrepreneurs who I was like, oh my God, these people, it's a big company. Uh, or you know, they they've solved these things, it's a big hurdle. And I what I wish people would have just told me is like just start. Just like it's not easy. It's never easy. In fact, it probably gets harder. There's no real like magic silver bullet. There's no perfect idea. There's no wrong idea. It's just really about like taking step after step, day after day, and you ultimately get to a great outcome um, if, if, if you're willing to do that and have the tenacity to move through the challenges that you're going to face. I think, you know, it's Fable. I think we're just really excited for some of the new pieces we have coming out and, you know, really shifting, you know, our messaging from, you know, bring joy to every meal, which was the original value of the, you know, original vision for the business to uh, ultimately feel right at home. And I, I think there's going to be some big shifts coming up uh, the next six to eight months. So we're excited to share that with everyone soon. Fable.com. Go check it out if you haven't. Where can people learn more about you? Where can they learn more about Fable? Is it just right on the website? Yeah, just right on the website. Fable.com or at Dine with Fable on Instagram. Best places to check us out. They're also pretty active on LinkedIn as well. So check us out there. Big fan, Joe. Big fan of you guys. Appreciate you coming on. Grateful for your time and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing where you guys go. Thanks, Jeff. Much appreciated. Thank you for tuning in to Behind the Brand. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. If you're interested in learning more about Neo Financial, visit us at neofinancial.com. Behind the Brand is a production of Neo Financial and Media Lab YYC, hosted by Jeff Adamson. Strategy, research, and production by Keegan Sharp, Alana Tefelchuk, and Kyle Marshall.